This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about a, an evangelical leader who recently went home to be with the Lord. One of my personal heroes went to be with the Lord in July, the British scholar and Christian leader John R.W. Stott. He was 90 years old. I will miss his pithy, succinct writing, his gracious style, and his deep-seated commitment to genuine biblical Christianity. Incidentally, one of his books that profoundly shaped my own thinking of a Christian is his classic, Your Mind Matters. I was astounded recently that someone from the politically liberal end of the spectrum took notice of John O.W. Stott. In his weekly column in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof lamented Stott's passing, but with glowing affirmations of not only him, but of evangelical Christianity as well. Kristof writes that partly because of such self-righteousness, and the examples he uses are Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, the entire evangelical movement often has been pilloried among progressives as reactionary, myopic, anti-intellectual, and if anything, immoral. These are his words. Yet that casual dismissal is profoundly unfair of the movement as a whole, he goes on. It reflects a kind of reverse intolerance, sometimes a reverse bigotry, directed at tens of millions of people who have actually become increasingly engaged in issues of global poverty and justice. Close that long quote from Nicholas Kristof. He also holds up Stott as an example of what he means. He lauds his compassionate demeanor and his consistent counsel in his 50 books to emulate Jesus Christ, especially his concern for the poor and the oppressed. He also lauds Stott's challenge to confront the social evils of racial oppression and environmental pollution. Stott lived his faith and called for the church to confront the evils of culture in a manner that reflected kingdom values and priorities. In doing so, Stott often ruffled feathers, including those worn by fellow Christians. Listen to Christoph's characterization of evangelical Christianity. Quote, In reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to no donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, he goes on, Go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, uh, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or even genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, Christoph goes on, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. Close that long quote. As you heard those words, were you somewhat shocked? Well, when I first read them, I was. Christoph, politically liberal and personally not religious. They're his words. Christoph has seen something in people of genuine biblical Christianity. They're living out what they believe. 
He is not listening especially to evangelical pronouncements about theology. He's seeing the transformational work they are doing for their Savior. Many years ago, Francis of Assisi said, At all times preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That is what is causing a man like Nicholas Kristof to take notice of something that he cannot explain, the transformed life. A life that is not selfish, not self-centered. Indeed, a life that is other-centered and willing to take enormous risks for the sake of others. That is why I admired John R. W. Stott so much. He was brilliant and incredibly gifted. He anchored his life around four propositions. One, God has spoken in his word and is completely trustworthy and authoritative. Two, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel, and without it, there is no hope for humanity. Three, Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. And four, those profound truths should produce a transformed life, one committed to evangelism and one committed to the pursuit of social justice. Quite honestly, I did not always agree with everything John R. W. Stott wrote, but he always was worth reading. Stott represented what Jesus called salt and light in a very dark world. And Nicholas Kristof took notice of that light, which was really a light reflecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. One of my prayers right now is that Nicholas Kristof will one day place his faith in Jesus Christ. If he does, the memory and legacy of John R. W. Stott will have played a major role in his conversion. Oh, may God in his mercy bring this to pass. I want to shift now in the second perspective on today's program to the Crisis Pregnancy Center movement, beacons of light in horrific darkness. The city of San Francisco has declared war on crisis pregnancy centers in the Bay Area. The first element of our attack is a bill introduced to the city's board of supervisors that would make it illegal for crisis pregnancy centers to advertise falsely in their, their words about the pregnancy-related services. Although California law already bans deceptive advertising, Malia Cohen, the bill's author, argued that the bill was necessary to protect low-income women drawn to such centers because of the free services offered there. She said, we have a responsibility to protect our most vulnerable residents. And she accused crisis pregnancy centers of promoting, these are her words, anti-abortion propaganda and mistruths and unsuspecting women. Close that quote. The second element of the attack in San Francisco is from the San Francisco City Attorney, Dennis Herrera, who has written a local center called First Resort about its advertisements. Herrera says they appear to be designed to confuse or mislead consumers. Now, it's important to understand that Herrera is a Democrat and is a candidate for the mayor of San Francisco, and he has declared his distaste for crisis pregnancy centers, as these are his words, right-wing, politically motivated institutions whose mission is to dissuade women from seeking their constitutionally protected rights, close that quote. In fact, one of San Francisco's crisis pregnancy centers, First Resort, is clear in its statement and in its literature that its mission is to offer, and these are the words of its mission statement, counseling and medical care to women who are making decisions about unplanned pregnancies. 
Sherry Plunkett, who is the director of First Resort, stated that all their clients, and these are her words, have full disclosure on the types of services we provide. We treat women with dignity and respect and respect their right to choose. Close that quote. Such an attack on the crisis pregnancy center movement is not isolated to San Francisco. This summer, New York City attempted something similar, but in July, a federal judge barred the ordinance that would have mandated such centers explicitly state whether they offer abortions and whether they have licensed medical providers on staff. Another federal judge struck down a similar ordinance in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, how should we think about such attempts to stifle the work of the crisis pregnancy center movement in the United States of America? There is a fairness and equity issue when it comes to such ordinances like we saw in Baltimore, New York City, or even San Francisco. If local governments are successful in mandating that specific items be listed in promotional and advertisements, then such cities should also mandate that abortion facilities clearly post that their primary business is abortion. Furthermore, to say that crisis pregnancy centers engage, and these are the words of a couple of the people I cited earlier, anti-abortion propaganda, is silly and more politically motivated than the charge itself. Can anyone who is intellectually honest declare that Planned Parenthood is not engaged in propaganda? Planned Parenthood is left-wing and politically motivated. If he's going to make that charge, as Herrera did, that the crisis pregnancy centers are right-wing and politically motivated, then he'd better be honest and say Planned Parenthood is left-wing and politically uh, motivated. If one is truthful, Planned Parenthood is one of the most propagandistic of all reproductive clinics in the United States. What is most upsetting to organizations such as Planned Parenthood and their political allies is that the crisis pregnancy center movement is now successfully utilizing sophisticated ultrasound technologies to show pregnant women the babies growing inside their wombs. And once a woman sees her baby, the chances of that baby being born are enhanced. Furthermore, the typical crisis pregnancy center offers a variety of services, ranging from counseling and adoption services to medical care and support for new mothers. In an article in the New York Times on crisis pregnancy centers and the efforts of city governments to stifle them, this is the lead sentence in that article, quote, Seeking to stem what they call misleading advertising, San Francisco offices on Tuesday began a two-pronged attack on crisis pregnancy centers, which are billed as places for pregnant women to get advice, but often use counseling to discourage abortions. Theologian Albert Moeller observes correctly. Look carefully at that sentence. The conjunction but is intended to contrast the phrases linked together. McKinley, who is the New York Times reporter, writes that crisis pregnancy centers are billed as places for pregnant women to get advice, but they often use counseling to discourage abortion. In other words, he insinuates that if crisis pregnancy centers use counseling to discourage abortions, they are not places for women to get advice. Evidently, the only acceptable advice is counseling that encourages a woman to have an abortion. Dear people, we are witnessing something here that is truly, truly remarkable. 
McKinley's article in the New York Times, and indeed all of the politicians involved in those three cities, are hardly giving an objective analysis of the crisis pregnancy center movement. For years, my wife and I have supported our local crisis pregnancy center here in Metro Omaha. Many lives have been saved through this ministry, and it is abhorrent that several cities are trying to stifle and curtail crisis pregnancy centers across this nation. The Crisis Pregnancy Center movement stands for the sanctity of life, the defense of the unborn, and in this situation, the right of free speech. San Francisco, New York City, and Baltimore should be ashamed of themselves. This is not what you should see in a democracy. We are talking not about propaganda. We are talking about a very legitimate movement that is trying to offer a contrast and a choice to women who only have options like Planned Parenthood. This is what democracy is all about. You have two organizations competing about two different sets of values. That's not propaganda. That's a democratic free society. And what these three cities, New York, San Francisco, and Baltimore, are trying to do is stifle not only free speech, but the heart of a democratic Republican society. They should be ashamed of themselves. This leads me to my final perspective on our program today, and I want to return turn to the debt ceiling deal and the downgrade of the United States credit rating. The downgrading of U.S. credit rating from AAA to AA plus is significant, yet troubling. That different political groups within the United States are trying to make political hay out of all this is obvious. But this nation at this point in its history cannot permit politics to determine our response. This is serious. But in many ways, perhaps it's more of a symbol than anything actually that substantive. Even last year, it would have been unthinkable to see the credit rating of the United States downgraded. But as I mentioned in last week's Issues in Perspective, the U.S. debt has grown enormously under the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And in I say this without any bias. It's a factual statement. Both Democrats and Republicans must accept equal blame for this disaster. This is not something that just developed since Obama became president. This crisis has been brewing for at least five years, if not seven or eight. It is not an issue of who is more responsible, George Bush or Barack Obama, or even a debate over who added more to the debt. The supreme issue is that this is the fault of both political parties, both of him who have placed politics over the national good. And in my view, shame on both parties for this debacle. So building on my comments from last week's issues, let me offer two additional thoughts. First of all, the debt ceiling deal does not actually reduce federal spending. By the end of the 10-year deal, the federal debt will be much larger than it is today. Indeed, both the federal debt and the federal government itself will continue to grow faster than the United States economy. 
Economists disagree about the amount of debt a nation can safely carry relative to the size of its economy, which is usually measured by GDP, gross domestic product. Nonetheless, the concern is clear that if a nation approaches a 100% ratio, in other words, the GDP of an economy and the debt of the economy are about equal, that's dangerous. In other words, the weight of debt suppresses economic activity. Stabilizing the ratio of GDP to debt would require about $4 trillion in cuts over the next decade. That is the target that Standard & Poor's declared the nation must meet. Must meet. When it did not meet that, the downgrade resulted. Incidentally, the deal that Obama signed and Congress negotiated posits about a $2.1 trillion reduction over the next 10 years. The reality of this debt ceiling deal is that it did not address any entitlement program issues, the largest by far drain on the budget of the United States. The deal eliminated no programs consolidated no duplicative programs, cut no tax earmarks, reformed no entitlement programs, and did nothing to restructure the antiquated and counterproductive tax code of our country. For all of these reasons, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. credit rating. From my vantage point, my prayer is that this downgrade will motivate Washington to start serious analysis of our debt and seek to reduce it by, at the very least, $4 trillion over the next decade. It really should be more, but that is a minimal amount for that ratio of GDP to debt to be at least reasonable and somewhat sane. This leads me to a second comment. The economist Robert Samuelson observes that the debt ceiling deal, and these are his words, does reflect national priorities for good or ill. It is mostly, and again, these are Samuelson's words, a triumph of the welfare state over the Pentagon. He argues further that the defense cuts show how, contrary to conventional wisdom, the budget deal reflects liberal preferences. The liberal agenda came in three parts during all these discussions. First, Raise taxes on high-income Americans to limit domestic spending cuts. Second, protect the social safety net, especially Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And finally, cut defense spending to spare again these domestic programs. That closing that quote from Robert Samuelson. Therefore, as the debt ceiling deal came down, the liberals got two out of their sacred three. They failed on the tax issue. The Republican Party regards tax increases as a political litmus test, and of course they're against those. Remember that retiree benefits constitute half of the non-interest federal outlays of the government. Therefore, the deal is not that hard on government spending. He argues the real budget story is how protecting these vast retiree benefits dominates policymaking in Washington. If you shield almost half of our spending and still want to cut, pressure intensifies on everything else. And defense spending is one of these major areas. The current American welfare state, constructed in much of the 20th century, is based on three entitlements. Social Security, 
Medicare and Medicaid for the poor, and now in early the 21st century, Obama has added a national health care system. The result of these entitlements is utter dependency on the United States government by the vast majority of its citizens. More than anything else, these entitlements explain our level of debt. Let me give you a very poignant example. When President Bush added the drug prescription program to Medicare and funded it with debt, we crossed a threshold on how we as a nation view entitlement benefits and revenue. For the first time in our history, a benefit was added to the population without any revenue tax to pay for it. The Social Security tax was not increased, nor was the Medicare part of FICA increased. In my judgment, this was a reprehensible act on the part of President Bush and set the stage for the even more egregious act of President Obama on health care legislation last summer. As historian Neil Ferguson has observed many times in many contexts, every major power began its decline over the history of this world when its debt became so cumbersome that the ratio to GDP and debt accelerated. When that ratio becomes unsustainable, nations cut into the defense, and they're no longer able to remain a major power. Ferguson observes there are no exceptions to this paradigm. Whether you're talking about Spain in the 16th century or England in the early 20th century, or you go back to Rome in the ancient world, any major empire or any major power that you're talking about, the issue of its debt is a marker of its decline. In my view, the United States has just crossed that threshold. That's why it is very up difficult to be optimistic about the United States and its role in the world over the next 10 to 15 years. The only way in which we can remain a significant power in this world, both economically and financially, as well as politically and militarily, is if we get this debt under control. We must do that. It's staring us in the face. And what Standard & Poor's, despite the kind of analysis that's going on about whether they should or should not have, the Standard & Poor's downgrading of our credit rating could help spur some significant attention to debt reduction in the United States, and particularly dealing with several of these entitlement programs to get our debt under control. If we don't, the math is clear. We will simply slip into second power status. In my view, the United States isn't going to go out of existence, but it's not going to remain the significant power it has been at almost all levels whether it's education, whether it's entrepreneurial uh, and sophisticated technological developments or the financial world or, of course, military and political power worldwide. It is important that the United States, its population, and particularly as we face a new election in 2012, face the brutal facts and insist that debt be the primary attention of this next Congress and this next president. May God, in his mercy and his grace, give us the courage to address this. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.